VorpalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight Games, where Out of Print is available again, and listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. This is Aton Bernstein, author of Dragon to Favor and the Magic Item Compendium and Exemplars of Evil, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And you may have heard in the latest episode of The Tome Show that Tracy went ahead and did an episode without me with her buddy living in Germany, Jared von Hindemann. So this time around, we're recording without her. Ha! Take that, Tracy! And in this episode, we're going to be traveling to the subcontinent as well as the Emerald Isle to get inspired. That's right, this is the second and possibly final installment of of Tome Travels. This time discussing my journey to India and adding in a trip to the Ireland by our guest of the episode, Mike Shea. Welcome back, sir. I loved the Ireland. (laughs) Did I say the Ireland? You did. (laughs) Well, you know, the Ireland is awesome. Sure. It's probably just because I said the subcontinent, which was proper. (laughs) All right. Well, before we get into all the uh, inspiration and things we got from our world travels, uh, let's take a quick moment to remind everybody about our sponsor, Noble Knight Games. I'll highly recommend Noble Knight Games. They're a very, uh, they provide a great service. They're very reputable. They're very well deserving of your business. And this episode uh, along, Mike picked out the pick of the episode. So, Mike, what do you have for us? I picked out the Village of Homlet, the original adventure in paper. Well, you can get the uh, PDF and everything like that now online. I don't know if you can get Village of Homlet actually, but you can get it from D and D Classics. But you can get the, you know, it's, there's something different about having the actual old paper copy sitting in front of you when you're running it at the table. So that's what I recommend. And Village of Homlet is a fantastic adventure. And I was reminded, I, I, I thought of that adventure when I was thinking about what a, a, an adventure in Ireland would be like. Very cool. So everybody can check that out over at noblenight.com and make sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all, and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today! And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. All right, so... Let's uh, talk a little bit about our, our journeys. Indeed. I guess I'll start off sure. with India. I have five double-sized post-it notes full of things categorized into four different categories uh, of places where I found inspiration. And it's interesting because I was, I was in India with 38 educators. And so I was taking a lot of notes and doing a lot of observations and contemplations about the things that I saw. I wasn't specifically focused on gaming very much because, uh, you know, I was looking at a lot of other things. However, I did manage to come away with quite a few things, I think, to talk about. Cool. Let's my, hear it. My first category is religion. Uh, India's got a lot going on in terms of religions. And unlike most places we might visit, it has religions that are maybe a little bit more reflected in a fantasy setting. Hmm. You know, with the... Um, the the large pantheons of gods and all that kind of stuff, right? Hmm. And so it gives you some interesting insights as to how that might work. But even more interesting than that, I think, is the is looking at a society that has many different religions that are dramatically different from each other and yet very similar to each other. Um, you know, so you're looking at Hinduism as as a primary religion, but you've also got Islam, which is a big religion, uh, and then you've got some a bunch of small religions like the Jain. Uh, the Janus and the Zoroastrianism or Zoroastrians. Is there a lot of persecution? Uh, there is a there is a history of 
I mean, there's been a lot of tension between the Hindus and, and the Muslims uh, in the last 60, 70 years, right? After, mm-hmm. the, after the independence and the partition um, that created um, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I feel like for the most part, the, the country is, is, has moved past that and is working hard to move past that. And especially the well-educated people and the leaders of the country are, are moving past that very, very quickly uh, and, and with a lot of forethought and, and you know, trying to make things smooth. Um, that said, any time you have that large of a population, you're going to – anytime you have any population, you're going to have a certain percentage of jerks, right? Mm-hmm. And when you have that big of a population – even that sm- same small percentage of jerks is going to add up to a lot of people. Still, still a lot of people. Right. Yeah. I mean, while we were there, um, there was a, a Buddhist temple that was bombed. Oh. You know, uh, and it was, you know, it was one of the – India is full of these, these um, United Nations World Heritage Sites. Hmm. Um, there's like – I don't know. There's like maybe – I think they said like 30 or 40 of them in the world and like 17 of them are in India. Hmm. Um, and so – and I think this Buddhist temple um, – might have been one of them with the specific Buddhist statue being very ancient and very important and all that kind of stuff. And the, and the, and while some people were hurt, the the statue was fine. You know, mm. Was the was the report? But yeah, so there's all these different religions, and I got a lot of sort of um, inspiration from some of them individually. And it's interesting because you don't have that kind of thing in a fantasy setting very often. There's typically, I mean, there's lots of gods, but there's really only ever one religion, right? You don't you don't typically see competing pantheons saying, hmm. well, your, your pantheon of gods can't be right because my pantheon of gods is and that kind of thing. Right. I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. I think that that some campaign settings can certainly be built on the, the tensions between religions. The problem is that we tend to think of them like good and evil, you know? So, well, right. And so, and, and that's, I think, I think typically, and, and you're right, there are some settings, you know, I, I specifically, I'm thinking like Eberron, right. Where religions are already a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, um, where they do some of that very well, but for the most part, it seems like in fantasy settings, there's you know somewhere between what ten and, and thirty gods, depending mm-hmm. on the setting. But everybody just sort of accepts that all of those gods are real. Yeah, right. You know? Right, the gods are right. There's, there's whereas this isn't that situation, right? You have yeah. four different pantheons, and right. each pantheon denies the existence of the other pantheons, with some exceptions, right? Uh, Hindu, sure. Hinduism, um, from the reading I did and some of the talking I did with people there, is actually very inclusive. Um, they're willing to say, you know, we, we've got tens of thousands of gods in our religion, but we believe they're all, everything is part of a singular sort of universal spirit. So your god's fine too, you know? Right. And so right. They're, they're a very sort of tolerant religion that way. Uh, one of the religions that I got a lot of exposure to, which is interesting because they're, they're a shrinking and dying religion, is Zoroastrianism. Hmm. Uh, Zoroastrians, or, or they're, uh, as a people, they're called the Parsi. Um, they are originally Persian, and when the Muslim invasion came in, they fled uh, persecution and ended up in, in India, hmm. where you know the Hindus were very tolerant and accepting of them. Um, and I found found them to be really interesting, and we spent a lot of time with them. Uh, some of our hosts, when we were in Pune, uh, which is a, a city of about three million people, were a lot of them were Zoroastrian, and so we got a lot of exposure to that and, and all that kind of stuff. And so that was really interesting because they're a very sort of closed off religion. Like they, pretty much any temple in India, if you wanted to go and visit it just to see what a temple looked like, they would they would welcome you in. Hmm. The Zoroastrians do not. You cannot hmm. go to their temple. Um, they, you cannot join their religion. You have to be born into their religion. Really? You can leave it, but you can't join. Well, that seems not like a very successful religion. Well, right. And, and, and at the time that, <laughs> that they created this, this rule, because um, it's not necessarily doctrine. It's, it's just sort of a rule they, they created during that persecution when they left Persia. Right. As I understand it, I'm not an expert on the religion, but um, they created it as a form of you know protecting themselves, so, so they can't have people get into their religion and, and persecute them or, or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it comes from a sense of, of, of almost paranoia. But today they're a dying religion. You know, there's there's tens of thousands of them left in a in a country like India. Tens of thousands is a teeny tiny little percentage, mm-hmm. right? And, and they're really interesting, right? And I feel like there's elements of them that you could create 
something similar. Now, I wouldn't want to put Zoroastrianism into my fantasy setting, right? But I think you could put a similar sort of religion into a, a fantasy game, and it would be really interesting because they're element worshippers, right? So they, they worship the fire, air, earth, water. Right. They worship at the fire temple where there's an ever-burning flame. Um, when when a, And this is one of the more interesting things. that If you know anything about Zoroastrianism, you probably know about how they treat their dead because they don't want to um, – they don't want to sort of desecrate any of those four elements mm-hmm. with the dead body. So they mm. won't bury it. They won't burn it. They won't you know, do all these things with it, right? Uh, and so their solution is they build these towers called Towers of Silence. And you put the dead body at the top of the tower and let the, the scavengers go huh. at it. Wow. Right? And so that way it doesn't, it doesn't infect any of the, the four elements. Uh, they also wouldn't let us visit the, the Towers of Silence. Hmm. As much as I, as much as it would have been really cool, but so they're small, they're exclusive, but at the same time they're also very influential. Uh, Parsi uh, tend to be fairly well off, and and we st- the family I actually stayed with for the weekend were were Parsi, um, and had connections all over the place, and they ran their own little small bu- small well small business um, of several hundred uh, transport vehicles in the city of Pune. Hmm. Um, you know they had it was the only. Uh, housing establishment i saw in the entirety of india that had lawns you know <laughs> you know so you and there you know there were live-in servants in in their houses that we that we visited so you know they're decently well off hmm. and, and that doesn't seem horribly untrue for a lot of zoroastrians a lot of the parsi they they were help uh, they help run schools and they're you know so they're very influential um and very much integrated into society and, and guiding things in society, but also a small, exclusive, dying religion, which mm-hmm. I feel like you could easily put something like that into a game setting. A right. religion that is exclusive and dying, but at the same time, very influential, very wealthy, very powerful. Um, they, there is a, a little symbol that they use um, that was on everything. Like we, we visited a school uh, and saw a performance on, uh, in an auditorium there and that symbol was sort of tucked away at the top of, of the stage. We, I, when I got in their cars and they drove us around, they had this, symbol, this little symbol stuck onto their dash and nobody really talks about it. Nobody ever references it. Nobody, you know, they don't even necessarily come off as really, really, really pious or extra religious people, you know? Right. Um, but there's just this little symbol everywhere and it, it sort of makes me think, you know, you can very, you know, you have this small religion, most people don't even know about them and they've got this symbol all over the place that you might start sneaking into you know the handouts that you hand out to your players or whatever that is a clue that they're all associated with this group that many people don't even know about because they're so exclusive and secretive you know hmm. so I feel like there's a lot that could be done with them um, I also had a, an idea for the idea where you could take a a civilization, a society uh, in your game setting or maybe a city that's, that used to be very religious but for whatever reason the people have turned away from that religion or maybe you've, you're in this world with competing pantheons and one of the, the pantheons has died off and you've got all these empty, empty temples and holy buildings that have then been converted. Uh, we saw a lot of that uh, of government buildings or schools or whatever that used to be um, religious buildings that have been converted over. So that, that, I thought that was a setting that could be interesting. Um, the idea of reusing – that of societies reusing settings I think can, be, can play off into some interesting things and confusing things in your game too. Sometimes confusing in a good way. Right. Uh, we visited a Jain temple. Jainism is another very uh, small uh, religion in India. But they're also known as being a very uh, wealthy um, people in that they – because when the Jains came in to India or when they developed in India or whatever, they, they got control of a lot of the mining. So for centuries, they controlled all the silver and gold and, and all that kind of stuff that was coming out of India. And, so as, as a, and, and they have a, a strong ties to each other as, as a community. So they help each other out. Uh, and so as a, as a community, they tend to be very wealthy. The door of the temple is made out of silver. So, mm. Solid silver, like, wow. and, not, and not just the door, the door, what is, but the gate that goes out to the street. Wow! That five feet away from was the homeless people begging. Hmm. You know, the inside the temple, things are made out of gold and gems and all this kind of stuff, and yet, not a single security camera. They don't hire people to, to watch it overnight, right? Security is really low, and we were we were told that 
you could have all this stuff wide out in the open and relatively unprotected because and, and I'll quote uh, our guide no one is no one would ever think of stealing from God hmm. you know the, the idea that that in a pious in a pious and religious society even when it's not your temple no one would ever think to steal from God and so everybody would sort of leave stuff alone right and I, th- I found that to be very interesting hmm. that that some of this is not just you know innocent thoughts but it's you know it actually plays out that way right uh, and then the only other uh, on my religion post-it note the only other bit of inspiration I had is we drove through uh, a town called Mathura and Mathura is according to uh, the mythology of Hinduism the the city where Krishna was born one of their gods mm-hmm. and the idea of having actual physical locations being the birthplaces of deities and that those become a center point for pilgrimages and, and large temples and that kind of stuff to that deity, I thought was something very easily portable into um, a fantasy setting mm-hmm. that oftentimes you know, we don't think to do. All right. That's religion. Hmm. My n- so one, one thing about um, – what, what was the name of the religion that was real small and you were born into it? Zoroastrianism. Is Zoroastrianism? Zoroastri- the, the, Zoroastrianism. The religion is Zoroastrianism. The people are the Parsi. So there was a it, – it brought to mind something else um, and, and it, that might might be interesting in a D&D adventure. There was a William Gibson book about a crime family and it was like the smallest crime family that was left in the, in the country or something mm-hmm. like that. And it had like eight people left in it. And it occurs to me like the idea of a – an entire religion that only has like eight members left, but mm-hmm. they're still trying to work the, you know, they're, tr- they're still trying to work the main doctrine of their religion, whatever that religion is trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they only have eight people left and they'll never have any more. Well, that, yeah, it's that's, al- that's it's kind al- of a neat idea. It's like always the, so difficult in, in D and D types of type of, of settings to, to do really interesting things with some of these religious right. things. Right. Because, you know, the gods are either there or they're not. Right. And, and they oftentimes take a very active role. And so it's very easy to tell which gods are there or which, which aren't. Or there's some settings like uh, Midgard or even the Forgotten Realms which say, well, yeah, and there can be competing pantheons. But really the gods of that pantheon and the gods of this pantheon overlap and they're really probably the same gods just with different names. Right. And that's, that's interesting as well. But it makes it difficult to tell this different kind of, of religious story. Mm-hmm. You know? All right, so my next note, I think is a fairly short one, deals with um, being in a place that is a former colony, mm-hmm. right? The idea of a setting where somebody else had conquered and now has left and has been gone for some time, right? Because mm-hmm. we oftentimes don't deal with that aspect of, of, a, of a game world, right? Because it's, such a, it's oftentimes such a long process, Conquering right. happens quickly, but then ending colonization is usually doesn't, doesn't happen at all. Or if it does, it happens because somebody else conquers, right? Mm-hmm. Very seldom is it just uh, is there a push to kick the conquerors out and, and you know make an independent country. And I saw you know it's been what sixty seventy years since India became independent, and yet it is still a significant theme in their society today. Sure. Um, you know, and there's they, little. You and, can never quite get rid of them, yeah. Oh, right. And there's hints all over the Especially place. Especially if they've been there for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. There's hints all over the all over the place of these little uh, reminders of colonialism. You know, right. there's there's building. We saw a, the fanciest looking train station you've ever seen hmm. in, in Mumbai that used to be some like British government almost. You know, it almost looks like a palace, right? I mean, it's got crazy decorations and statues and filigree and everything all over every inch of the outside of this thing and then you you know you go in and it's a, it's a train station mm-hmm. but the idea of taking old colonial buildings and, and repurposing them um, the the clock tower on that on that building still plays the uh, was it God save the queen mm-hmm. you know even though India has not been part of the empire for some time. Yeah, there's, right. there's still all these little hints, these little clues about their colonial days all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, specifically, I visited a school while I was there. I visited several schools, but, but I visited a school called St. Vincent's, uh, which is a Catholic missionary school that it's been, that's been there for several hundred years uh, in the city of Pune. Mm-hmm. And 
I found it interesting as a colonial site. Um, the idea being let where you could put a, a, a almost an estate in the middle of a city in a fantasy setting that is way bigger than it should be. Right? This school has a very large campus. In the middle of a, of a city of three million people, that land has to be extremely valuable. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and they have refused to commercialize it, to sell it, to do all these things. And the reason they have such a huge amount of land isn't because you know, the Catholic Church gave them a bunch of money and they bought a huge chunk of land. It's because they've had that land longer than the city's been there. Right? That was their land and the city sort of grew out from elsewhere and, and, and swallowed them up. So the idea of there being sort of this ancient sort of colonial site in a fantasy world or in a fantasy city and then the city sort of engulfed it over time can help explain why it is that, that there's this large estate that, that wouldn't otherwise make sense in a densely packed um, high population area, you know? And then you can add in all kinds of extra adventure ideas, right, where – and it almost gets a little bit Scooby Doo here for me, but where you know where they're trying to, somebody's trying to convince them to sell the land because it's so incredibly valuable. Hmm. All right, so that's my colonial former former colony notes. Next is my population. Your 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 uh, sticky notes must be like, you know, eighty inches long. I'm good at bullet points and then extending. I was going to say, that's a, that's a crazy amount of notes you're able to pack in these <laughs> sticky yep. notes. I've been podcasting for a while. I'm good at uh, expanding. Or I like the sound of my own voice. One of those two. <laughs> so population. I've got three bullet points on population. Because I don't know if you knew this. India has a very large population. Yes, I did know oh, Okay. So one of the things I'd, we, we encountered that I'd never really thought about is that when you have a large populous city – it needs a reservoir, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have a reservoir somewhere in the city, the people will not have enough water. The crops will not get water. People will die, right? Right. So large cities, whether it's Waterdeep or or Bombay, have, have to have a reservoir. And sewage. And sewage as well, yes. Some way of getting rid of waste. Right. Uh, and I found that it was interesting because, you know, I never thought to include the concept of a reservoir, which – is just me leaving out, you know, little details of infrastructure, which happens all the time in a fantasy setting, right? But the idea that, well, maybe it's okay to leave them out because they're hidden. We visited a reservoir that was called the Hanging Garden that's hidden. Mm-hmm. You can't tell there's a reservoir there. You, you just walk into a park and they've got topiaries around and all these short little uh, shrubberies all over the place and green grass and bushes and flowers and all kinds of stuff. But all the plants have to be short-rooted plants, hmm. right? There's no trees in the entire garden because it turns out it's sitting on top of a reservoir, which is why it's called a hanging garden. Hmm. It's, the garden is literally hanging, on, hanging over the reservoir. And so you know, and there's all kinds of these little hints about what's going on if you, if you knew where to look. You know, if you look over the, the, the fence in one section, you see this large wall where, oh, yeah, that's the side of the reservoir. There's a little entryway over there or whatever, right? So there's all these, all these hints, but if you were just driving by, you'd say, oh, look, that's a nice park. Uh, so maybe that's why we, we never mentioned our reservoirs in our games because they're hidden hmm. in plain sight. That's pretty interesting, though. I mean, I, I, it's, a good, it's a good key for a villain. You know, there's always villains going after water mm-hmm. supplies, but it would Absolutely. be interesting. And I guess if, you're, if your setting was set where water is more of a scarce resource than the amount of you know, guards they would have watching it might be high. Or, you know, it's just winter. Right. Even a setting that has a lot of water in the winter doesn't. Mm, maybe. I mean, you would think, yeah, I don't know. The only way to, to thaw it. Yeah. Well, naturally, but it's hard to – I mean, you can have the water to survive, but it dramatically impacts your life if you don't have it readily available. And you have to start doing that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Now all the time that you're spending getting water is not being spent shoeing horses or whatever else your profession is. So things come to a halt. Um, I also uh, thought of the idea – well, I I was inspired by the idea of um, when you have a high population density city or two in this case, um, people seek to get away. Mm -hmm. So as we traveled from Mumbai to Pune, um, we actually ran through the middle of this city that was was described to us as basically being a a resort town. 
in the middle of the mountains, right? In order to get from one from one city to the next, you have to travel through the mountains. And so, in the middle of the mountains, there's a there's a city that exists, and it only exists to service the people trying to escape either one of those two cities, hmm. right? Which is also interesting because then you it's, it becomes a, a common meeting point as well. You have people from two major population centers that normally wouldn't meet each other all coming to the same place. And so you, you can get some interesting culture clash from there as well. And then the last bullet point I have has to do with how a dense population impacts commerce. Right? One of the things that we oftentimes do in fantasy gaming is um, when somebody needs to go, go buy something, there's a market. There's a square mm-hmm. and there's, there's booths and shops and tents or whatever and you go off and you, you buy what you need to buy. Um, what I discovered, if you use India as an example anyway, is that when you have a really dense population um, like that, markets do develop. But the markets, especially if there's not a, a, a strong organizational force, the markets aren't enough. Right? Now, if you go to Japan, you're probably going to be fine because they have a really st- strong structure to right. society. Right? But India doesn't have that. So the markets exist, but the markets cannot contain you know, but, but, a, but a percentage of the commerce that needs to be happening. And so there's this mass amount of unorganized commerce happening everywhere in the city. Hmm. Like the, the small little side streets are lined with booths and, and people with wagons and, and you know, street vendors just everywhere you go. Now, one of the things that, that it occurred to me as I was uh, as I was hitting my second week in India, uh, I realized one of the things I really missed was the concept of a residential zone. Like, I, there there was nowhere you can go that people are not on the streets trying to sell you things. Mm-hmm. It is just constant and everywhere. Um, and and there's markets as well, and the markets are are all of that to the nth degree. Mm. So I thought that was something that that could very easily be incorporated into the flavor of a you know if you've got a large population center in your game if you're you know you're visiting Waterdeep or Kalimport or or uh, what is it uh, Sharn or whatever right um, that it's, there's a good chance unless it's an incredibly structured society there's a good chance that there's just going to be commerce everywhere and finding any any particular given thing that you want is going to be very difficult. Um, you know, not necessarily something to add in as a as a challenge in a game, but something that can add flavor to it. You know. Mm-hmm. And now I get into my miscellaneous category, <clears throat> things I couldn't otherwise categorize. For example, a story of a war hero from Pune, who, um, when sieging a castle, tied ropes to large lizards, like, <laughs> like large iguanas. And flung the iguanas at the castle wall. <laughs> and the iguanas climbed the castle wall, but they're so strong and so heavy that they could just, you know, the people could just hang on behind the lizards and, and they would drag them right up the wall. Is that true? A- apparently. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Bye. That's I, one of those things like I could never put that in a game because nobody would believe it. I know, right? <laughs> but it's even more believable in a game, right? Although, you know, the dark elves, they ride, don't yeah, they, they ride big lizards and climb do. over walls? They do. But yeah, so that's the story I actually heard multiple times of, about this one, this one famous war hero from the area um, who also had he- used heavy use of you know, secret tunnels and, and all kinds of stuff. It managed to kill his assassin before his assassin could get to him. All ki- you know, he's got, there's all kinds of stories. But you know, the Indians are nothing else really good at, sto- at storytelling, I've discovered. Mm. Um, we visited and talked to, to several businesses and the idea of socially responsible businesses came up, and very seldom do you see the concept of a socially responsible business in a fantasy setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I was thinking about specifically. I was thinking about one called Fab India, uh, as you know, if you translated that into a game setting, a socially responsible business could very easily become a, an adventuring party's patron. Mm. You know, the concept behind Fab India is that they are effectively distributors and sellers of other people's. Um, products, right? And so they work with all these community-owned companies and, and they help them get started and they help them get trained. And so they, they go to these the small rural areas of India that are generally very poor and help them get a company started and teach them uh, artistic skills of how to make this cloth or how to make this thing or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then they, they run their own companies and they make it and Fab India owns a portion of their company but not, not a majority of it and then you know, and tells them this is what we want more of and whatever and so that, you know, and they'll make it and, and then they 
send it to Fab India, and Fab India sells it, and then they get a percentage of, of the pro- proceeds that way, right? So the idea is that they're a profit-seeking company, but they're also a company who profits through encouraging um, local and rural artisans who otherwise wouldn't have any career at all. Mm. And so their company only succeeds if they're looking out for the well-being of these other companies they're working with. Mm. And they fail if the, if those companies fail. So it would make a lot of sense for a company like that to also have, you know, in an adventuring wor- in, a, in a fantasy world, have player characters to run around and say, "Hey, something's happening over this company," uh, you know, and they could very quickly become a patron. You know, the shipment's not arriving, or women keep disappearing, or whatever it is. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a hundred different sort of uh, adventure concepts that could come out of the the idea of a socially responsible business as a patron. Mm. And then I got into two more here. Um, the, the Taj Mahal. Yeah. So we went to the Taj Mahal. And my big idea from the Taj Mahal was um, magic item crafting. The idea being if a player wants to craft a magic item, you could require there to be a specific style of artisan, which has to be involved in creating this item. Except that that art form has been almost completely dead for hundreds of years, mm. with the exception of one family who's kept it going, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what's happened in, with the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal, when you look at it and, it and you see all the decoration and the color and stuff on it, all of that stuff is inlays. It almost looks painted on. None of it's mm. paint. It's all carved inlays. And they hired thousands of artisans at the time to build the Taj Mahal and to do just to do the inlays. I think mm-hmm. they said like 8,000 artisans just to do the stone inlays. All the, wow. all the Arabic scripting around it, all the, the decorations, everything. And there are some pieces where you've got a, a lotus flower, for example, that took you know, uh, six or seven pieces to make that one lotus flower. And then you get inside the Taj Mahal and you see the lotus flower in there and, and it took uh, over 80 individual little pieces to make one flower. Hmm. Right, I mean, it, it is an incredibly detailed, incredibly difficult art form, um, and there is one effect, effectively one family, which is now sort of expanded. I mean, it's still one family, but over the two hundred years, that one family has gotten fairly large, that has kept this entire art form alive. Wow, nobody else is, has is still doing it, um, and they're still doing it in the traditional way. They're still using the the hand tools and all that kind of stuff to do it because they've actually tried to mechanize and it, and it didn't work as well. Uh, and so they're, they're the only people that are still doing it. Um, the government's actually supporting them to try to keep the art form alive. So if you buy any of their stuff, it's completely tax, tax-free, duty-free um, as part of the government incentive. Um, but, but it's just an, this incredible thing. And it, and it occurred to me that this could very easily be an essential component in some sort of magic item creation, right? If anything in the real world has ever reminded me of the concept of crafting a magic item, it's watching these guys make these little tiny pieces of, of precious stone and to inlay and to make you know this, that, or whatever. Right. It was very impressive and very cool. My last bit um, is starts off as a general use historic sites as locations in your games. Mm-hmm. Right. Find interesting historic locations, pull up a map of it, change the things you need need to change to make it fit your setting, and just use that map. You don't, don't bother coming up with your own maps because mm-hmm. any maps we come up with are, are seldom cra- you know, based or grounded in, in reality, right? It's just whatever I wanted to do or whatever suits the need of, of this fun idea I had, right? Right. Whereas real-world locations meet real-world needs. And because of that, they feel more real. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so – and India is full of them because India is a land of, of crazy – or not crazy of, – of, of big myths and legends and magic and spirituality and all kinds of stuff that is a little easier I think to translate into a fantasy setting than, than a lot of other historic sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one example that sort of made me think of this was when we visited uh, Humayun's tomb, which I th- – think was in Delhi, although it's all sort of become a blur at this point. But I thought the room layout worked out really well. It was very symmetrical. It made a lot of, you know, whatever. But um, 
but the room layout I thought worked really well in terms of it almost creates a bit of a maze, although it's very symmetrical in the way it's laid out. But you can't just go from one room to the other unless you know how to get from one room to the other. Um, because there's these sort of uh, spider web carvings in between the in- some of the entryways. And you may have seen images of this, like in the windows or in, in what almost looks like doorways or whatever, the, the sort of uh, really detailed spider web stone. It's like stone, right? But it's been carved out into intricate designs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this actually co- goes back to uh, some religious importance in Islam. The idea was um, Muhammad was being, was being chased and he ran into a cave um, and a spider spun a web in front of the cave. And then when his pursuer, pursuers came to the cave, they saw the spider web and assumed that he, that he couldn't be in there, right? Because mm-hmm. he would have broken the spider web. And so the idea was that you could create these spider webs, uh, spider web-like designs, and they are unbreakable. And I like the, that concept of having this intricate spider web design. You can see what's happening in the next room, but you can't actually get over there because there's this, there's this this carving in the middle of the entryway, and it is unbreakable. And I like the idea of it being unbreakable, but not for magical reasons. It's just a fact of this sort of design. You just cannot break them. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of thought to other things. It's amazing how uh, I've I've visited m- several places in, in my life, and I've never noted the detail for drainage like I did in India which makes a lot of sense because I was there during monsoon season too and so suddenly it becomes very clear oh this is why there are drainage ditches everywhere this is why every wall has a little spot in it for the water to get out right um, but at the same time as I'm looking at Humayun's tomb and I'm walking around I'm like but these are wide drainage ditches right I mean some of them are, are several feet across with little bridges going across they could very easily in a fantasy setting be filled with all kinds of uh, dangerous things to make uh, an interesting encounter situation. And then they, the, the whole compound is surrounded by various gates and each gate is, is it, you know, a, a structure and a building in its own right. And, and I feel like they could very easily be de- themed in different ways. Maybe they're elemental or whatever and be part of a larger puzzle. They're also all surrounded by these different gardens. Each garden is its own separate individual garden, which could also be themed and part of that same puzzle. I just found there to be a lot of interesting things going on with that specific tomb. And that's just one that I, that I visited. And I feel like you could find a dozen places or more in India alone that could very easily become encounter sites. Right. Right. All right. There's 30 minutes of inspiration from India. Awesome. Any questions before we let you talk about Ireland? No, one, one thought I have, um, you know, the, the idea of, of taking a real life. There's, there's a lot of interesting little facets and tidbits to the idea of taking a real life place and throwing it directly into, into mm-hmm. one's game. Uh, one is that there is, there is some reason, there's for some weird reason we have it in our heads that we can't just steal directly, that we, we should modify something and kind of turn it around because it's, you know, it's unseemly if we, if we just use it directly. And that most of the time is BS. Right. You know, there's no reason you can't just throw it right in your game and no one will notice, you know, or if it's slightly out of context, then it works perfectly. Yeah. If, if, if I would, I would encourage, well, I don't know if I would encourage, I would consider if I was doing it tweaking, if for only to add, to, to step up the fantasy elements. Yeah. Just, I was, just I was actually, that was going to be my next point. Yeah. yeah. Was that if you, if you can find, if you can find the one fantasy element, the one element that makes it so that it's not. You know, it's not as uh, pedestrian as something we would actually see in our real world. Although, um, what's pe- what, what's pedestrian in terms of historic sites in India is still pretty fantastic for our world, <laughs> right? Yeah, so. that's actually one of the, yeah going there because we, I mean, we just we don't you know us here in the West we don't we don't get to see so much. Even you know, Ireland is is pretty wild compared to you know America, but it ain't India, right? <laughs> you know, oh like, yeah, there's still a lot of European. Yeah, you know, European culture that's kind of embedded and, and oh, yeah. we're used to seeing it. And but I, in India, it's it's like going to a different planet. And I loved India, but I was ready to come home and have a burger. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, the hamburgers in Ireland—best hamburgers I've ever oh, had yeah? in life. Yeah, I had a steak in India one one time. I managed to find beef. I had a steak in India, um, and it was okay. <laughs> I figured they don't get a lot of practice cooking steak though, so I could forgive them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So shall I tell you about Ireland? Yeah, tell us about Ireland. Um, so mine, mine will be uh, shorter. I don't, I don't have. That's fine. I, I rambled more than my. I, my did, fair I share. filled an entire moleskin full of notes um, here, but I uh, most of it was a journal that I kept while I was taking the trip, and not. And I have a page here where I kept like things about D and D, 
Um, but to give you an idea, my list on things about D&D is as long as my, and this is a direct quote, things that I brought that I didn't need on the trip. <laughs> right. So, which is a surprise. Are you planning on going back to Ireland someday and needing that list of things? No, but I always like to like keep track of what I'm packing. I packed a backpack. I, all I had was a, I think I brought nine, nine pounds with me. So I had very little for a week. You, had, you got it over there for a week for in nine pounds? Nine pounds. Yeah. And, uh, and that I was, I was allowed 50 pounds and I had 49.5 when I got on the plane (laughs) at nine pounds. Um, life changes when you're willing to wash your clothes in a sink. Yeah. Uh, I only brought, you know, half the clothes I needed, but yeah. So a half the clothes you needed and that meant you spent the other half without clothes or I, I, I got them washed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight things that I brought, which is probably a third of the total items I brought, I never ended up using. So I, that's why I wrote it. <laughs> but that's not why this isn't a podcast to talk about this. It's a podcast to talk about D&D stuff. Um, so probably I'm going to kind of, I'll start big and go small and then I'll come back. Uh, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about Ireland, this is probably true about all of Europe, and, and we don't quite get the same sense of it in the States, is a land that's got like you know, 3,000 years of history visible all around, yeah. you know, where parts of, so we, we, we stayed in, in Southwest uh, and mostly in the Clare area of Ireland. I don't or Ireland. I don't know if you know anything about, or the Ireland, as I like to refer to the, it, the um, that, you know, we stayed mostly in the, in the Southwest. We didn't get up North and we didn't get out to Dublin on the, on the East side. And, um, but we did get to places like the Burren where they have these, um, uh, circle forts that are, you know, pre, you know, they're in the BC range, you know, they're, they're three, four, 5,000 or two, three or 4,000 years old. And, um, and they're just in the middle of people's farms. In fact, the whole area has these wrecks and ruins of towers and castles that are just everywhere. I mean, it's all over. And it's funny because it's, it's one, it's one of these things that you, the first, you know, you're jet lagged driving a car and you're looking you're like, wow, look at that. There's this ruined tower. Like we should pull over and you can't cause it's private property. Right. Interesting to go on there and you're going to see a lot of them. Um, so that, that kind of got it's, me. It's like when I went to Africa and it's like the first time we saw a zebra, we were like freaking out and t- everybody was taking pictures of the zebra. And by the <laughs> end of, by the end of the trip, it's like, oh my gosh, look, there's a thousand more zebras. No yeah, big deal. Right. <laughs> you know? See any more zebra. Yeah. Um, so that I mean that those that kind of layer is is really interesting. You know, these just kind of layers upon layers of history, and in in some cases, and and in particularly this was true with um, uh, um, the Rock of Cashel, uh, which is where the cathedral to to uh, Saint Patrick is. Um, mm-hmm. In some cases, you will see the layers literally just stacked right on top of one another. Mm. You know where. Just entire ages of history, one right after the other. You know, going back, you know, three thousand years, and then and then you know, further up and further up and further up and further up until a couple hundred years ago, and all kinds of crazy history. And you'll see the remnants of it um, right there in front of you. Um, yeah, this is, this is some of my notes here. Are pretty useless. I wrote down everything's different. I know? imagine. Yeah, like that's that's real. Although that's helpful. Uh, the I, bet, smell I, bet, of, I bet I could beat you in the everything's different category. Though. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> everything's yeah. different except. But I, I also wrote that I think within within five hours of getting there. No, sure. I, everything was different because I hadn't slept in 30 hours. Um, there was, you know, one of the things is it's it's very much a it's a it's a very livestock focused country. I mean, there's farmland, but there's also tons and tons and tons of livestock. Mm-hmm. And uh, the smell, which you might think is an unpleasant smell, isn't really that unpleasant. And it's everywhere. Like, it, it, you know, it's, it's the entire country's kind of that way. And that's, that's really pretty fascinating. You know, mm-hmm. just, I mean, I've never, I mean, I, you know, I've lived in the Midwest as a kid. So I wasn't, I wasn't not used to that. But because it's a, a smaller island, it's, it's everywhere. You know, like every, I mean, we have, we woke up in the morning, we'd wake up to, to cows running around to get fed, um, which was very nice. The, um, uh, one of the, the the roads there are all very small, and it occurred to me, and they all have walls that are right on either side. And it occurred to me that from like a defensive standpoint of an area, if you had these kind of narrow roads, it it forces choke points mm. 
throughout an entire area. So, and in, 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 in warfare, it doesn't take more than like a three or four or five foot high rock wall to really cause problems for an army sure. or a group. You know, if it's just high enough that horses can't quite get over it, then you're, you know, you're going to create choke points in that, you know, you, if you were building a defensible agrarian society, you might build these walls up a, to keep your livestock from running off, but B, because it just, it helps, you know, it helps break up any potential big attack that might come in from. Yeah, I didn't see. I mean, I could tell you all kinds of stories about traffic and, and roads in India, right? But, but I didn't see anything like that. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to um, they didn't. They didn't. I guess they either they didn't have those same concerns, mm-hmm. or they they've sort of built over those long ago, you know, and so all that kind of stuff is gone. Uh, with, with the exception of, we did make it to the old part of, of one of the towns we were in, uh, and people that were driving this around places said that they hate going to that part of town mm. because that was, that was quote, before they started planning the roads, you know? <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm, I'm watching them drive around the, the part of town that we're in. It's like, really? This, this is planned? Like, you know? yeah, Right, right. Well, Ireland, Ireland was some of the craziest driving I've ever seen anywhere in my life. Um, so much that I would not, you know, I wouldn't recommend anybody drive there if they don't have to hire <laughs> oh, someone. We could have a we could have a traffic uh, comparison off. Yeah, probably. Here. Right, I'm sure. And, yeah, I don't imagine it was like uh, uh, India. Yeah, um, L- lanes are a suggestion in India, not a requirement. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, not a surprise, but just a huge amount of churches and cathedrals all throughout Ireland. And and again, kind of stretching history, which is really interesting. So you know, the idea that when people really kind of come out to to really build things, it's often to build religious structures, mm. and that's something in D anD D we might not pay a lot of attention to. But some of the you know the some of the biggest and most biggest oldest and 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 you know most awesome structures that would be in a village or a town or a city would probably be the religious structures that are there more so than kind of kings' castles and whatnot. Yeah, although you see a lot of uh, pictures of Ireland, of you know castles and things built on on the the sides of cliffs and things which are really inspirational in terms of fantasy settings i assume those boy, are castles anyway well there's some but yeah boy if you ever want to see cliffs you know we saw the, the cliffs of moor and 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 there's just you know yeah. i mean crazy you know the absolute ge- crazy cliffs the geography of, of ireland seems with yeah. the, the hills and the cliffs and all that kind right. of stuff seems really inspirational for a fantasy right. setting right right yeah it's really it's really fantastic um I was reading a book while I was there. I was reading uh, the latest um, uh, Patrick Rothfuss book, uh, Wise Man's Fear. Have you read this book? Nope. Uh, it's a good book. But one of the – it had a concept for a character and I kind of had this concept in my head while I was looking around in the streets of Ireland. And it was like these religious um, – it was a, this religious sect that uh, – uh, these kind of Templars and they were very, very select. Like there was only a handful of these Templars that would ever be – active and once the church or once the religious group put the templars in charge the templars answered to absolutely no one you know they were an absolute pure manifestation and vehicle for the will of god so no one would ever question what they did like everything that they did regardless of how horrible it could possibly be would be considered just and right only by the fact that they did it Hmm. and i thought that that like the, the super paladins yeah, right. And I, I thought, like, you know, they, they, I think in the book they bring an example. Like, if it was, you know, if one of these Templars was to walk up to a child in the street and just stab him through in the middle of the street in front of everybody, everybody would say, well, that was the way it was supposed to be. You know, because that's, that's what this guy did. Or at, the very, I, or at the very least, depending on, on the religion of your fantasy setting, that was the will of, of that god. Yeah, right. And, and anybody had followed him. Right, right, right. But I, was, I, I thought that that was kind of a neat... You know, it was a neat concept for somebody that's kind of above good and evil, you know, and and would certainly be an interesting villain. And for some reason, when I was looking at kind of these these really, really old structures, I was thinking, like, what, you know, what a Templar like that would be like in a time like this. Hmm. Um, what was oh, so so kind of getting the specifics, I guess I guess the place that rem, that really grabbed me the most from a from a sort of fantasy and D&D perspective was the uh, the Rock of Cashel. Uh, which is, you know, there's, there's no one, the rock is, i.e. like a big, a big hilly mountain sort of area. And there's a great cathedral that's on top of there. And the cathedral has this just history that goes, 
you know, really, really far back. I don't know. I have all the notes in front of me, but essentially they built like, you know, it was, it was a, a, a castle and a keep for Lords before, you know, before Christianity made it over. And then they, you know, the, the, the warlord who was kind of baptized. In fact, there was a whole kind of little bit of lore that when St. Patrick baptized this warlord, he was very nervous about doing it. And at one point he, he has, he had the, the kind of staff with the cross on it. And he leaned forward to do the baptism and he stabbed the guy in the foot with the staff. And the guy thought it was part of the ritual. So he, he didn't say anything, you know, while the staff is buried in his foot and, and no one else chose to be baptized because no one else wanted to get stabbed in the foot as part of the ritual. (laughs) And, um, but you know, and they, they just kept building on top of this place. So you go and there's, there's, you know, one part that was built in the 1600s, one part that was built in the 1200s and one part that was built in like the 800s. And, Mm -hmm. and there's inside, there's one particular, uh, chapel. And I don't, I don't remember, I think it was, I don't know, it was, it was really old, but they, they had like a mixture of, you know, Catholic symbolism, but also a lot of superstitious symbolism from the tribal side of it. So they had like all of these, they had one thing that I thought was really pretty wild given the time period and given kind of what I, what I had assumed about organized religion at the time, which was they, they had these carvings of faces that went all across this arch and each of the faces was a different nationality. Hmm. And it was to kind of represent, you know, this unified, unified vision of God, regardless of nationality. And I was like, you know, that's, that's seems like a really modern concept, but this was back in like 1200 oh, AD. Sure, yeah. So it looks like know, it has a real mix of, of architecture too. I'm seeing, you know, yeah, I'm yeah, looking at, I'm looking at pictures as you're talking about it. Right, it's got, right. you know, the, the, con- the towers with the, the conical tops, but you've also got flat top towers and yeah, I forget the, the names of the three different kinds of architecture, but there's three t- and Gothic is one of them, but mm-hmm. there's like three major kinds of architecture. They're all, interconnected in the same structure it looks like a, uh, something out of a scene from the highlander or something yeah right yeah right right the the big battle that went mm-hmm. on right because half of it's collapsed which is also really cool um so one of the interesting things they did with this place is they would have these really narrow corridors that would go between places and that was so and actually that's they had this in castles as other castles as well and the narrow corridors required you to go single file and to duck down and that was a very strong defensive technique uh-huh. Because it meant if you were attacked, you were fighting at a severe disadvantage. You oh know, yeah. If you were if you were in these little kind of nooks, you know, crawling through these these halls, and it didn't always help. Like there was actually one invasion. I think it was thirteenth or fourteenth century where the, the whole village went into the castle to 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 um, uh, to avoid this you know attack, and they essentially closed the doors and burned them all on the inside hmm. and killed everybody inside, man, woman, and child. So, you know, they were saying, like, don't worry about stepping on the graves because everywhere you step in here, you're stepping on dead people. Yeah. You know, like this, this place is full of them. There's hundreds and hundreds of people that died in this place. Your discussion of, of defenses there reminded me a little bit of, uh, of a location I didn't talk about in India called uh, Agra Fort. Agra is mm-hmm. the, the city where um, the Taj Mahal is. Mm-hmm. And sort of down the river from it is the, the old fort that was there. And they pointed out to us that there's, you know, there's multiple gates you know, um, walls that you have to go through in order to get actually into the fort. Mm-hmm. But the roads curve in between. So you go one direction from one gate, but you, it's almost a 90-degree turn then to get into the next gate or whatever, which is normally fine, except that at the time, the the cavalry that they were afraid of weren't horses, it was elephants. And elephants couldn't make the, the, the curvy, sharp turns very easily or very quickly. And so the fear was that elephants would charge and trample down your, and knock down your doors. But they can't do that if they tr- knock down one door and the next one's at a 90-degree angle. They, they, you know, they can't get the momentum to charge another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah. And meanwhile, you, know, there's, you see arrow slits all the way along on the inside and outside all, the whole time. So, right, right. Yeah, you made, me, you made me think of that. Which also reminded me of um, we saw the, the palace – I've put palace in quotes here uh, because the palace that the, the emperor lived in in the fort was was actually very small. It was like one room. Um, but then there's this big courtyard and it's ringed in arches and these little sort of cubicle-sized sections all the way around this courtyard um, that at, now have doors in them. But the British added the doors. The doors were never actually there. At the time, that's where all the concubines lived. And they were divided out into into rooms just by by throwing up uh, curtains, basically. 
So the the, the concept of so little privacy, you know, mm-hmm. that there could have been there were hundreds of people living in sort of in this courtyard, um, and the only privacy they had was a sheet between them and, and the other one. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, anyway. You just made me think of Agra Fort when you were describing the defensive systems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's another interesting little side bit to um, the Rock of Cashel. There's sides of the walls. If you're looking at my pictures, there's there's sides of the cathedral. There's all these like small little holes in the wall. You know, these little kind of like f- you know four inch by eight inch holes mm-hmm. all through all across the wall. And it turns out those were for the posts that they would use to build it. Hmm. So they would purposefully build these holes in and then put beams in so they could stand up on the beams and essentially build a scaffolding on the outside. Mm-hmm. And they left them there so they could continue to, you know, put put them back in and basically climb the outer side of the mm-hmm. wall, which gives it a really interesting texture. Uh, I don't know how defensible it is, but it's not really a castle. Sure. It's more of a, it's more of a, a, you know. It's like the rings on top of the Taj Mahal, the, you know, the dome. Yeah, you look at the dome from from a distance, and it looks like a, a smooth dome. Mm-hmm. You get up close to it. There's actually these giant, like three or four foot uh, diameter metal rings stuck into it that were not part of the original design. They were added <laughs> during World War II, so mm-hmm. they so that they could drape camouflage over it so it wouldn't be bombed. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, they're huge. I mean, you could stand on top of these rings. Yeah. I mean, you can't actually because you'd have to climb up there. But they, they yeah. just left them in just in case there's ever another. You know, they they um, utilized them again when when the tensions with Pakistan were high or whatever. You know, just mm-hmm. so it's not easy to find and bomb from the air. Mm-hmm. There was one place we, we went to a place called the Aran Islands and um, or mm-hmm. one of the Aran Islands and there was a uh, cemetery and in the center of the cemetery. They had excavated an entire chapel that was under the ground. Like it had been over time, the ground had had you know kind of had had enveloped it. And um, I've always kind of you know there's there's an old H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story about a house, and underneath the house there's some creature that lives, and everybody that's in the house is miserable until they go and they try to kill the creature. But I was I always thought that was that, that idea of like an an old buried thing that's forgotten about, but still is having influence on the whole area around it. Mm is always neat and you you know you could kind of get this sort of bram stokery sort of vampire hovel that's so old that the land has just enveloped it like the earth doesn't even like it and wants to bury it but it's still down there and if it gets exposed you know bad bad things happen mm-hmm. um, but i really i thought that was that was really pretty neat to kind of see this you know whole area there's a cemetery and right around the cemetery right in the center of the cemetery is this you know small chapel that's that's 12 15 feet below the surface mm-hmm. um what was some of the other you know kind of i don't know i, I kind of hit some of the, the main stuff i mean there's just you know the, the cliffs and the cliff side the whole western coast where it goes right up against the ocean is just just incredible and it's just these sheer cliffs and you can imagine living on the edge of these sheer cliffs would be great i mean it really is something right out of game of thrones you know mm-hmm. the, the eerie that that is big castle up in the up in the sky and right on the edge of a cliff um but yeah i think you know i read a a really really wonderful interview with william gibson the science fiction writer um who wrote neuromancer one of my one of the one of the novels that defined me as a as a person when i was 14 or 15 years old (laughs) and um he was talking about cities and he described and you know he talked about this a little bit the idea that cities are really just these like compost heaps that always retain some of the oldest aspects of their of their origin you know mm-hmm. that you, you keep building a city over top of another city but there's always pieces of the old city there and you can think about like if you've every so often we'll get these great images on the net of like the the oldest subway tunnels in london you know that are round and New York even, right, where they the, the subway tunnels are long abandoned, but they're still there. And, mm-hmm. you know, somebody put a chain up to try to get the, you know, the druggies out, but it's still down there and they're just, they're they're not going to go away. You know, it's not, we all like to think, and in, and in America we did because, you know, there was so, so much kind of, you know, all we had to do is, you know, poison the Native Americans and we had everything, I guess, right? But the the whole idea that, we would build Detroit from nothing, you know, or Vegas, right? You know, there was nothing there in the desert when they built Vegas. They built Vegas right on top of it. Right. But a lot of cities that are, you know, 
to that I mean you look at London and like you can go around London and there's a pub that you go to in London and right next to it is a wall from Rome. Right. You know, <laughs> a wall that was built from the Roman Empire. Yeah, there's just and these the wall is remnants of everything still there. Years old. Yeah, it's still right there. And you know, it's not even like you'd think like a two thousand year old wall. You'd you'd want to put a chain around it or something. Well, right, and it, yeah, exactly. I was going to say the same thing. Is that I, I feel like as Americans, sometimes I feel like we're really precious about these things, and probably yeah. probably justifiably so. Right? There were places I went to in India where you're walking around these ruins. And they're like, oh, yeah, and when you're in there, make sure you look at this thing and, and the intricate carving on these pillars and all kinds of stuff. I'm like, oh, that'll be cool. Then you get in there and the, there, there's nothing marking the pillar. Right. There's nothing – you know, there's no rope around it. You know, I could go right up and, and you know, break chunks off of this great carving that's been there for thousands of years or whatever, you know. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that people don't, you know, that it's, that it's as well-preserved as it is yeah. just despite the lack of protection that it, that it would have if it was in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but at the same time – you know, I think it's as a historian. I think it's good to protect things when you can. Mm-hmm. I think that they just have so much history; um, it's not in their, it, you know, feasible in their budget to all right to protect all to, of to it. protect all of it. So it's just well, we want people to to have an experience, a chance to see it, but we're gonna have to, you know, that's gonna include eating some risk. You know, right, right. Yeah, there was a, a in a in a town called Ennis. There's a friary in the center of it. And the friary was. You know, let's see, let's see, Britain established royal, but you know, 1230, you know, so it's like 800 years old. And, mm-hmm. and it's right in the center of Venice. And, and you know, the, the part of the friar we was sold, you know, a while ago and turned into a pub that they call the friary that's like right next door. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's built out of the same general structure. You know that the rest of the friary, which is you know, the, or the rest of the, the the church that's right next door, exists, and you know people are still buried there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's almost by lottery; like they had to put their names in centuries mm-hmm. ago, and and you know, or, you know, their family names had to be in for centuries if they're going to get buried there. But then it's it's right in the center of a town. You know, it's just sitting out in the middle of, you know, sitting out in the middle of everything else. Well, yeah, and that's one of the things that, that astounds me too is that um, as Americans, we don't have that kind of history around us constantly. Right, right. But can you imagine being in the, the city of Agra is not a small town. Mm-hmm. That's where the Taj Mahal is. Can you, can you imagine being somebody who grew up in the, that town where the Taj Mahal is just another common, you know, yeah, land, landmark right. in your town, you know, right, you know, right. Oh, it's just stupid Taj Mahal. You know, in fact, people, yeah. some people uh, in that city hate the fact that the Taj Mahal is there because they actually had to shut down all the leather work industry that was there because it was polluting and changing the color of the Taj Mahal and and it was killing, you know, destroying this wonder of the world. And so all of the industry of the city got shipped out to other places. And so, you know, there's Mm -hmm. this battle between the, the economics of the region and, and protecting the history, but the same, you know, but just the idea of, Oh yeah. I passed the Taj Mahal every day on my way to school. It's just mind blowing to me. You know? I mean, I see, you know, it's like, I see the national cathedral every day on, you know, on my way into work and I see the Washington monument three or four times a week. And that doesn't, you know, it's kind of like, Oh God, it's a non issue for you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I got, you know, I hate DC. Like I've lived here for 15 years and you know, every time I go into the city, it's a mistake. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I could certainly see how they got there. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, to me that, you know, that the idea of a true agrarian society, a society that's all built upon, on, on, uh, um, you know, kind of having all their own local produce and, and, and local, um, you know, animals craftsmen and, and artisans and all that yeah thing. right it's that that's pretty great but i but i really love that idea of layered cities you know the yeah. idea of a city that's just layer upon layer and then when you think about it from a dungeon standpoint you know the idea that the the city on top just keeps pushing the other layers below the earth and yeah. now you've got your greyhawk <laughs> your greyhawk yeah which is always a bit tricky for me right because i some some part of me has a hard time just believing that there's you know like i think futurama right Mm-hmm. Where the old city, the old New York or whatever it is, is, is sitting there almost completely intact. It's like, well, no, nobody like you can't do it that way, right? I mean, you can't just build your city on top of the buildings of that city because it's not structurally sound, right? Your city would yeah. collapse it. Uh, but there are certainly elements of it that are still that would yeah. that will survive, right? You know? um, and there's you're always going to have the imprint of every age that your city's been in existence, right? Um, around. 
Right. Or right. at least you hope there would be. Right. All right. Well, we've talked yep. for over uh, slightly over an hour now. So. Yep. Yep. Thanks for sharing your experiences in Ireland. Sure. Yeah, it was a great trip. Very interesting. All right. Well, I, thank you for sharing your experiences in India. Yeah, it was. I'm I'm really glad I could go, and I would totally go again, but not anytime soon because it is an exhausting place to be. Yeah. So. I feel the same way. I was happy to go to <laughs> Ireland, but 18 hours of travel is a pain. Yeah, but I imagine Ireland has a has a variety of food. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, then I I didn't get as much different varieties I wanted. Like I said, I said that they had the best hamburgers there, and they do. Like the McDonald's in Ireland, I didn't eat there because it's a McDonald's, but I kind of wanted to because the McDonald's can point to the specific farmer in Ireland who made the beef oh, that they wow. burgers out of a McDonald's. Like that, that you know, that they take so much pride in that idea. But when I when we went to a couple of the pubs, and I'm not much of a white fish guy, they they have a lot of white fish mm-hmm. and shellfish, and I'm I'm just not into it. And um, so I would get their steaks and their meat because it's so good. Mm -hmm. And their hamburgers are the best hamburgers I've ever had in my life. They were really, really, really good hamburgers. Meanwhile, India, McDonald's, and I did go to McDonald's in India just to have the experience of what does Indian McDonald's look like, uh, does not serve hamburgers. Wow. I had a a, basically a chicken burger. It was the, (laughs) uh, the double Maharaja Mac. Which is their version of a, of a Big Mac, except that it was chicken burgers instead of that's crazy of hamburgers. Oh. Um, but yeah, so mm. and 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 in India has a significant lack of diversity in terms of food. Like ninety five percent of the restaurants are Indian food. Yeah, so well, that's three, good. three yeah. three you well, like Indian food. Yeah, Indian food's great, except not three meals a day for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, breakfast was. Indian food. It got to the point where it was all just the same thing to me. I had no idea what I ate. Uh, I was just, I could I would have killed for a burger, man. <laughs> crazy. Anyway, I, we want to thank you, Mike Shea, for joining sure. us. Please. We want to thank uh, Noble Night Games for sponsoring us, and we want to thank all of you out there who go out to use the affiliate links from Amazon and D&D Classics. Hey, and Jeff? Yes? Thank you for, for doing these podcasts. Hey, well, I love doing it. If anybody wants to get a hold of us here, you can email me at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. That's 919-BIZ-TOME. And this has been episode 221, where we've traveled, I don't know, all over the place. In this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.